0: Venturini from the EUI in Florence. So, uh, without further ado, can I ask Anna to take the floor? Sure. You need to point in this direction of that. So, good
1: morning to
0: all. Can you the mic? Should be on, it. Yes.
1: Okay. Good morning to all of you. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's a um, a very very uh, important topic that we're going to discuss today. Uh, and I know that Brugel has organized other events on on the issues of migration, and I think it's all really relevant and timely because migration now often features in various political debates, but uh, sort of from a rather emotional perspective rather than uh, from, the, from the perspective of establishing the facts. So I think this is something that's, that, that would be particularly useful at this point in time. So in my presentation today, I'm going to focus on one particular Um, episode of intra-European migration, and that is emigration from Eastern Europe uh, that started in the early 1990s and continued over the last quarters of a century. Uh, Compared to other waves of migration, uh, this particular episode has been uh, not only uh, unusually large in scale, but also persistent. It was dominated by Uh, relatively younger and well-educated people, and at least based on the evidence so far, seems to have been permanent. So, you know, one can uh, conjecture that this kind of uh, outflow of uh, migrants from the region must have had a profound impact on the economies of the region as well as on Europe as a whole. And this is what actually um, motivated uh, the work that we've done with, uh, with a team of people at the IMF looking at the economic impact of uh, emigration on Eastern Europe. Of course, uh, I should say that emigration, migration, uh, is, is a very complex phenomenon that has not only economic aspects, but also, also social and political aspects. And moreover, it's, migration decisions are usually uh, driven by personal choices of individuals that are looking for higher pay, you know, better jobs outside their countries. And uh, while these migrants themselves may be better off ultimately, and their families may benefit from the remittances that they send back home, the impact of their departure on on, on their home countries is is less clear. Uh, And that is something that, that we will focus on in this first presentation, looking at the sending country perspective and trying to understand the economic impact of migration. So based, to understand uh, the impact of emigration sorry yes so to understand the economic impact of emigration uh, on eastern europe we looked at several channels through which the uh, outflows of labor and the inflows of remittances might affect economic outcomes in sending countries so these channels include private sector, we'll look at the labor market on investment and productivity, uh, the impact on external competitiveness, uh, the impact on public sector balance sheet, and ultimately uh, we'll try to gauge uh, what is the overall impact of emigration on growth and convergence, income convergence of Eastern European countries towards advanced Europe. So, before I get into details, let me just run through the main findings uh, from our analysis. So, looking at the private sector, we find that emigration has significant, emigration from Eastern Europe s- since the ni- early 1990s has significantly drained labor resources and specifically skilled labor um, and also lowered productivity in sending countries. The role of remittances is, is, is a bit more mixed. On the the one hand, remittances have had positive impact on uh, domestic uh, consumption investment, uh, as well as uh, contributed to financial deepening in those countries that receive remittances. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, they also contributed to higher wage inflation uh, and uh, real exchange rate appreciations in some of these countries that has uh, had adverse implications for external competitiveness. So now looking at the impact on the public sector balance sheet, we find that emigration has contributed to larger size of government uh, because of the need for higher social spending in percent of GDP um, and also changed the, uh, the, the budget structures, uh, making them somewhat less growth friendly because in response to social spending pressures, many of the uh, governments had to uh, raise taxes on labor. And ultimately, uh, we find that emigration uh, has slowed growth in income convergence in Eastern Europe, and we'll try to provide some quantification later on in, the, in this presentation, uh, while overall it had a positive impact on the receiving countries, and it was also positive for the EU as a whole. So first, let's look at some stylized facts uh, related to labor flows. Since the early 1990s, uh, roughly 20 million people, <coughs> 20 million, close to 20 million people uh, have left Eastern Europe. So to give you a better sense of the scale of this, this is uh, roughly equivalent to a combined population of the Czech Republic and Hungary. So the the magnitudes are actually quite large. The chart on the right shows cumulative migration outflows (laughs) For different subregions in Eastern Europe, the Baltic, Central Europe, Southeastern Europe, and Southeastern South Europe non EU countries, and European CIS countries. So, here, as you can see, um, this uh, cumulative migration outflows are expressed in percent of the uh, populations of these countries, uh, of these subregions, of, in the early 1990s. So, in some uh, subregions, and notably in Southeastern Europe, the, Cumulative emigration amounted to about 20% of the population, which is, again, quite sizable. Um, And uh, another interesting thing to note here is that uh, the outflows have been relatively steady, uh, with maybe some accelerations during specific events like EU accession and uh, crisis. So now let's have a look at the geography of migration flows. So where did emigrants from Eastern Europe go? Uh, the map in the next slide uh, shows is, is, uh, illust- is meant to illustrate the direction of migration flows. It's, um, the, the shading here is based on GNI per capita, with relatively more wealthy countries shaded in green and less wealthy countries shaded in yellow and red. So the arrows show that Eastern European emigrants have mainly gone to um, more wealthy countries in uh, Western Europe, with Germany being the top destination, but some also went to um, other places uh, like U.S. and Russia. So what were the key uh, factors that explain the direction and the scale of migration flows? So beyond the usual gravity factors, like the geographic proximity and common language, which are well known to, uh, to affect the direction and scale of migration flows, we also find that there are other push-pull factors that are important, and most notably, both cyclical and structural factors turn out to be important in our empirical analysis. What is interesting, however, Uh, is that we find uh, that the impact of different cyclical and structural factors varies depending on whether we're looking at skilled migration flows or unskilled migration flows. Uh, And here by skilled, what we mean is that these are are people that have secondary or tertiary education, so at least secondary education. So firstly, if we look at cyclical factors, we find that economic growth and unemployment gaps between receiving and sending countries turn out to be equally important for both skilled and unskilled migration flows. However, when we look at structural factors, such as the quality of institutions or the size and availability of social benefits, then we see that for uh, skilled migration flows, it's the quality of institutions in home country which is an important um, factor, while uh, for relatively, Low skilled or unskilled migrants it's the availability of social ben- and size of social benefits in the receiving countries that turns out to be relatively more important so what do we know about skill and age composition of migrants the charts on the next slide show that emigrants tended to be relatively better educated and uh, younger than the populations that they left behind so the chart on the left shows the share of people with tertiary education. Um, in total population of the sending country, and that's on horizontal axis. And on the vertical axis, it's the same share, but in the migrant population. So um, as you can see, most of the countries are above the 45-degree line, meaning that the share of highly educated people uh, among migrants tends to be higher. (coughs) And on similar picture, you can see a similar picture on the right-hand side chart, but for age composition of migrants. So now having established some of the basic stylized facts on labor outflows, let's uh, uh, have a quick look at uh, the, the, the economic um, impact of labor flows. So first, it is important to note that immigration in Eastern Europe has occurred against the backdrop of the already negative demographic trends in the region, uh, which really... Um, is different, uh, which, which is different in, in, in Eastern Europe in comparison with other emerging markets, many of which still in, enjoy demographic dividends, so, so-called demog- demographic dividend, younger and uh, faster-growing population, which is not the case in Eastern Europe, where demographic situation is more similar to Western Europe. So in this chart, you can see that the, the black diamonds uh, show changes in populations in different Eastern European countries between 1993 and 2012 with negative contribution of outward migration flows shown in red. So as you can see in, some, in, in, many, in many of these cases, this, this was a sizable um, drain on, on the working age populations. So what was the impact of emigration on wages as a result of this uh, drain of uh, skilled labor? Uh, we find that emigration uh, has actually contributed to in wage inflation in sending countries. The chart on the left shows that emigration-related upward pressures on domestic wages have been sizable, and they have been particularly strong in those countries that have experienced larger, relatively large outflows of skilled workers, such as in the Baltic states and in Southeastern Europe. Uh, we attribute this uh, to a couple of factors. Uh, one is a relatively low substitutability between skilled emigrants and remaining populations in the in ascending countries, so the, that, that could result in labor shortages and hence upward pressures on wages. And the second factor is that, because of remittance flows, inflows, reservation wages may have increased, which also uh, may have had an impact as well. The right-hand chart shows that, um, similarly, we find that uh, that there's been a negative impact on uh, labor productivity as a result of the outflows of uh, skilled workers. So next. Uh, Let's have a look at remittances. Of course remittances are often the flip side of migration outflows. Uh, Because we've seen that labor outflows have been quite sizable, one would expect the remittance inflows to to be relatively large scale as well. And this is what uh, we we, we do indeed see. Uh, The the map here again shows... um, um, different countries shaded depend, based on the GNI per capita with more wealthy countries shaded in green and less wealthy shaded in yellow and red. So as you can see that uh, the inflows of remittances were particularly large, especially f- uh, to some of the Western Balkan countries and the European CIS countries. Um, interestingly, you can see that if we look at, at, at the relative importance of source country, it turns out that Russia tops the list of um, remittance, sources of remittances, and this is because of, of a relatively large share of circular migration, which is not, uh, you know, captured in the, not, not, not entirely captured in the labor flows that we discussed above. So next uh, question is, what are the economic uh, implications of remittances? And as I mentioned in the beginning here, the picture is mixed. Okay, good. So on the one hand, remittances tended to promote investment financial deepening and consumption. But what is interesting is that the, the sort of s- significant e- effect can be observed mainly on those countries where remittances account for a relatively large share of GDP, over 10%, while in other countries uh, the, 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 the impact is, is, is not significant. So in the left-hand side chart, you, you you see the change in private deposits consumption and private <coughs> investment, and the contribution of remittance flows is in red. So you see it's, it's quite sizable. But these are only in high remittance-receiving countries. And in the rest of the of the region, this, this is much less significant. However, what is interesting also is that remittances uh, appear to have had negative impact on the incentives to look for a job and on the probability of... Um, Employment. Again, the left-hand side shows Southeastern Europe, uh, non-EU countries, and the right-hand side shows uh, uh, other, other uh, mm, countries in the region. And here again, you can see that uh, higher remittances as a percent of GDP seem to be associated with higher probability of a person deciding uh, not to join the labor market, and that's shown in blue. This is probability of inactivity. So this is somewhat mixed picture. Next, uh, if we look at the impact of remittances on the public sector balance sheet, uh, we find uh, the following. The next slide shows the actual values of public debt and fiscal deficit, both expressed in percent of GDP of an average Eastern European economy uh, as of 2014. So if we, um, based on our empirical analysis, take out the estimated effect of migration, so this is the no-migration scenario, we can see that the uh, picture doesn't really change very much. So the bottom line is that there there seems to have been a limited impact of migration on the overall fiscal position in in these countries, which is uh, consistent with previous studies. However, what is interesting is that uh, emigration has had an impact on the budget structure, and on the on the overall size of the government. So here we uh, do a similar exercise but now we look at the composition of public expenditures and uh, public revenues. Uh, expenditures are on the left and the public revenues are on the right. Uh, we look at the actual composition, and then uh, we uh, try to sort of simulate a uh, composition in a no-migration scenario if we take out the empirically estimated effects of migration. So what we see on the expenditure side is that the, the actual social spending, and particularly the ones on pension and healthcare, are higher in percent of GDP, uh, than they would have been under no-migration scenario. And this is consistent with also with a negative demographic of impact of immigration. And on the revenue side, um, the actual social contributions and consumption-based tax revenues are also higher relative to GDP compared to the no-migration scenario. <coughs> and this is, again, consistent with higher wages because of immigration and skilled labor shortages, and also with higher consumption, which is boosted by remittances, and uh, as a response to the need for higher social spending, higher labor taxes. So the question, of course, ultimate, the ultimate question that we were after uh, was what, 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 what was the uh, impact of immigration on growth? And, um, I mean, it would not be surprising to, to, if it, for you to, um, to learn that we found out that, the, that uh, immigration has dampened growth. Uh, This is, of course, not surprising because one would expect the economy to shrink when uh, labor uh, force gets smaller. But the really relevant and uh, interesting question is what happened to uh, per capita GDP? So whether per capita GDP uh, has increased or declined as a result of emigration, And uh, the answer to this, of course, is not obvious because uh, while emigration leads to smaller GDP, it also leads to smaller population. So on balance, you know the, the 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 sort of the the outcome is is, is less clear cut. So if we if we look at theory, then um, as is usual with uh, economic theory, the answer depends on the model, uh, and specifically uh, it would depend on the extent to which negative externalities that that, that are associated with the loss of skilled labour would affect productivity and um, GDP growth. So ultimately this is an empirical question and this is what we try to do. We try to answer it using empirical approach. So what we find is that slower real GDP growth has indeed slowed per capita income growth and hence convergence to advanced Europe. So what is, what, what, what is shown here in the left-hand side chart is per capita GDP in uh, different Eastern European countries relative to uh, the EU average. So this is in percent of EU average. Um, The gray uh, bars correspond to the actual levels of per capita GDP uh, as of 2014, and uh, the added-on red bars correspond to, uh, to the estimated drag from emigration. So if you add on the red part, this is what it would have been without emigration. Uh, the right-hand side chart sort of shows that this is, this, this is sort of additional uh, per capita GDP growth separately, um, and um, on average for the region, uh, the per capita GDP would have been uh, about five percentage points higher in the absence of migration. And there we also break it down into skilled and unskilled, and most of this is due to the um, drain of skilled migration. So, so far we have been looking um, at the historical uh, evidence, uh, so it was mostly backward-looking discussion. Uh, but looking forward, is the question is whether this, this is still going to be a relevant issue. Uh, and it seems that uh, this is indeed the case and it's not likely to go away. Uh, in this slide we uh, show um, a chart that is based on the recent survey that was done by a German research center, uh, they asked uh, young people in uh, different Southeastern European countries about their intention to leave, uh, their intention to emigrate. And the numbers are actually quite striking. So the average is, uh, on, on average, about half of the surveyed young people, which is a representative sample in this case, stated their intention to emigrate. With a, with a sheer as high as 70% in the case of Albania. I mean, of course, survey is one thing, uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the reality is something different, but still, uh, g- given sort of the, the its stated intentions, I, I think this is already a pretty strong indication that this uh, issue is not likely to go, go away and this may continue. In fact, the study um, that... Um, Uh, So the the, the study where this chart comes from concluded that the greatest threat to uh, future of uh, Southeastern Europe is the very probable loss of human capital. So in our paper also another thing that we've done, we wanted to uh, try to gauge the economic impact of uh, this likely continuing uh, immigration on uh, uh, economic outcome going forward. So to do that we used um a model that was developed by the IMF research department which is a structural general equilibrium model global general equilibrium model um, and what we've done we basically calibrated it using the empirical analysis that uh, I um, discussed in the in in the earlier part of the presentation and um we um simulated the impact of the migration flows on the level of GDP over 2015 to 2030 using the, the projected migration flows by Eurostat and United Nations. So the input numbers are the ones that come straight from Eurostat and United Nations. And so what we find that countries that are net senders uh, will likely see negative impact on their output levels. Uh, while the countries that are net recipients will likely see a positive impact uh, on their levels. When we um, (coughs) run the same simulation, but for focusing on GDP per capita, we get uh, similar results uh, with countries that are most likely to be experiencing drag from future migration outflows, including um, Baltics and uh, Southeastern Europe. So where does this leave us? What, are, uh, w- what, what is to be done to make sure that migration works for all? Which is uh, the, the, the title of today's conference. So despite a positive impact of um, east-west migration on the EU and on the receiving countries, we do find that there has been uh, some negative impact on uh, the sending countries. And that raises the question of what are the policy options to address potential negative uh, effects, both from the sending side and possibly at the EU level as well. So in in this uh, slide, I I basically just outlined a few policy options. Uh, The blue boxes contain some of the policy options on what um, sending countries can do for themselves and the green box contains uh, some ideas on what can possibly be done at the EU level. So first, uh, on what kind of, can assenting countries can do for themselves? I mean, this essentially include policies um, to retain and attract workers, to better utilize the remaining workforce, and also to better utilize remittances. I mean, of course, better institutions and um, better economic policies in home countries would make them more attractive for people to stay, uh, for those who left to come back, and also may uh, help attract uh, uh, people from maybe outside the region who would be looking for attractive opportunities in Eastern Europe. So these are sort of bread and butter, you know, sound sound policies that uh, would would sort of help not only with with the issue of migration, but would generally be good for countries. But there are also some other specific policies that countries can look at. Uh, specifically, further liberalization of immigration regimes uh, may, may be warranted in, in these cases given the continued negative demographics. Also, um, uh, maybe more active work with the uh, diasporas could help uh, bring back some of the uh, people who, who, who left their countries, and all providing incentives for them to um, bring back their skills and capital. And um, in addition, of course, better use of the remaining workforce, increasing labor force participation among women, for example, as well as uh, better matching of education to employment needs would certainly help as well. Although, of course, there are limits to what this can do. And at the EU-wide level, um, the, the European Union already has a mechanism um, that, um, um, uh, allows for a transfer of funds to uh, less developed regions uh, and it's it's the eu structural and cohesion funds so in this case perhaps one idea is that uh, the the this the amounts or the composition of this funds could be better calibrated to take into account the the effects of migration on the economic potential of of sending countries i mean this is something that could be looked in, into Perhaps and uh, further discussed. For example, uh, perhaps uh, investing more in human capital development in building um, technological hubs in the region would would go a long way towards making making these places more attractive for skilled workers to 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 to, to stay um, and. Uh, you know achieve uh, help to achieve the objective of faster convergence much better with uh, while mitigating the negative impact of migration uh, outward migration. So let me stop here. Um, thank you very much and uh, the, the, I, I'm sure that this policy different policy options will be discussed in more details later in the in the day. Thank, thank you very you. much Anna thank you.
0: Well, before we go into the next presentation, I'd like to sort of open up the floor for one or two questions. We will have a time to discuss also at the end, but perhaps the break will be the presentations. Any questions from the floor to, directly to Anna? Yes, Marek. I have
2: one question. If you, in your analysis, if you replace... Can like the Marek Nombrowski-Brugel. Um, I have a question related to measurement. Um, if you replace GDP with GNI, uh, the same conclusion hold, or the picture is different?
0: Shall we collect, maybe collect two or three questions, and then we can, so can... And then the gentleman in the back, the last one, and we
3: come back at the end, yeah. Uh, Wolf, Bruegel, I, I have a question on um, sort of your simulations, and, and uh, if you could share a little bit more about, you know, what is the counterfactual, really? Uh, because if you think about uh, people leaving, qualified people leaving, I mean, they usually leave because they don't have job opportunities. Now, of course, they can stay, uh, but then they would, of course, work in vastly uh, inferior jobs um, than the jobs they would get, um, uh, let's say, in Western Europe or, or in the rest of the world. So you have to put in some assumptions of what kind of jobs these guys will actually have uh, at home. Uh, and I was wondering, how do you model this really in the models uh, and how do you come about with these? pretty significant numbers um, uh, that uh, GDP uh, of the GDP losses in Eastern, in, in eastern Europe. Thank you.
0: Okay. okay, two more questions and then we'll come back at the end. The gentleman at the back there.
3: Thank you.
2: Uh, Nico Keppens from DG Defco. Perhaps this question is a little bit out of scope of this meeting, but if you would replace the, the central and eastern countries by African and Asian countries, <coughs> would the same conclusions uh, be valid?
0: Thank you. And then one last question here. We'll come back at the end. We'll
4: have questions at the end. Just one here. Yes, <clears throat> from Italy. Um, if you uh, in in the group of your countries, there are countries that belong to European Union and we don't belong to European Union. Hmm? Uh, the, the first one are free. People are free to move uh, all around the European Union. Do you see differences? between the first group and the second group in, uh, uh, in your results or not?
0: Okay, thank you. Anna, do you want to take five minutes to respond to this and then we'll yes, come back. to I, I, can,
1: I can just try to answer very briefly. Starting with the GNI question, <clears throat> uh, if we, in, in our analysis, uh, replace GDP per capita with GNI per capita, would the, the, the basic results still hold? Yes. It would be less, uh, the, the magnitudes would be less because we would also take into account the um, uh, the incomes that 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 are earned abroad, uh, but uh, the result would still hold. And we actually, if you look at the paper, we, we do provide some estimates for both GDP per capita and GNI per capita. So that's a short answer. So the answer to the second question on um, um, how do we? I'm not sure you asked whether you asked about the empirical. Uh, analysis or about the, the forward-looking simulations the empirical
3: analysis
1: yes so the empirical analysis uh, we um, are uh, assuming that uh, the that, that the skilled peoples are employed at home as well so we're not we are not making any assumptions about them changing the the probability of employment so and the the, the estimation is actually quite um, Complex. I mean, we use instrumental variable approach to, because because of various endogeneity issues and so on. Um, and there is a there is an appendix in the paper that, that, that has all these details. And I actually actually happy to discuss this with you um, after. But it's in terms of you said that the, the magnitudes are large. I'm actually not sure they are so that large. We we were surprised that the numbers were not not really as large as as one would expect. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, that is the result. So we again, and on, on the empirical side, we've you know, tried to estimate it as sort of carefully as we could, using, in some cases, two-stage list squares, in other cases, instrumental variable approach, controlling for all the factors that we thought were relevant. Um, but we did not assume that the probability of employment changes when people move. So people are employed in their countries, and they're also employed uh, in, in wherever, wherever they go. Essentially. It's true that the um, job opportunities maybe in, in the host country in the host countries are sort of more attractive and people sort of go there for better pay. That that is indeed the case. And that's why presumably we find that the overall impact on receiving countries as well as on the EU as a whole is is positive. And it's because you know, people basically find the best possible opportunities and the best possible application of their, their skills. So this is where sort of the, the gain comes from for, for the receiving countries and, and, and for, the, for the European Union as a whole. Well, what we wanted to show here is that for the sending countries, though, there is, a, there, there is a negative effect from this sort of massive loss of skilled labor that also needs to be taken into account. That's, that is that is how it is. Um, and um, the question on whether there is a difference between the EU and non-EU country, uh, countries, um, of many of the non-EU countries are the ones that have the biggest uh, income gap uh, with Western Europe. And although the labor mobility maybe is not as free as within the EU. And there, was, there has still been quite sizable emigration from Southeastern Europe as well. So empirically, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that there's, uh, that they, 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 they exhibit less of outflows or less of an economic impact than other countries.
0: Okay, well, uh, if we can then take the rest of the questions at the, at the end of the session. Okay. And I'd like to give uh, Stefano the, uh, the opportunity to present. You go up there? Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's up to you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Maria. And uh, good morning uh, to all of you. It's also a great pleasure for me to be here to participate in this conference uh, organized by Google and uh, on a very crucial and uh, sort of very important topic. Uh, What I'd like to do is really to complement what uh, Anna has been doing by presenting you some of the evidence focusing on uh, European countries, but also more broadly, also as a comparator to uh, OECD countries from the receiving side of the migration flows. I think this will complement what uh, Anna was saying about the impact on uh, on the sending country from the to European. The first point I would like to make is that, of course, much of the delay for very good reasons, uh, is focusing on uh, the past year and a half, uh, especially in Europe, uh, on the major humanitarian uh, refugee crisis. But I think we have to put that into context. So I'd like to start by just uh, looking at uh, the flows of permanent migrants. And what you can see in this chart is that uh, there was a somewhat of a slowdown, do the global financial economic crisis, no surprise. The demand for labor also coming from foreign war declined, but this has already gone up, And you can see that 2015, the last year for which we have data, we are back <coughs> to one of the highest levels in terms of uh, uh, migration flows into the OECD countries. When you look at the data, this actually focused on 2014, the situation changes significantly in the most recent periods about the uh, Permanent flows by origin of these flows, you see that work. So people have come into the OECD country for work, they represent a significant fraction of the <coughs> flows. Family reunification and family migration represent an important fraction. And then humanitarian, back in 2014, was only one fairly modest component of the entire flows. Of course, if we look at 2015 and 2016, humanitarian flows have increased significantly. The point here is simply that there is a general trend of increasing flows of permanent migration in most of the OECD countries which is related to economic conditions but also demographic factors. The second point is that of course there are huge differences across OECD countries and also within uh, European countries. Uh, If you look at the different uh, origin of permanent migration of the European countries, free movement represents a dominant element of the entire flows But if you look at the EU area altogether, in which we are looking only at the third country, you see that it's fairly comparable to what we see in the United States. Okay, so large differences across European countries, a significant fraction of the flows being made of (coughs) movement, but also you see that work and family unification represent a significant fraction of the entire permanent flows. The third point is, again, because this is very much related to our discussion, which is also so the economic reasons behind migration flows, is that we have seen, again, from 2014, and even stronger, although we don't have data for a wide range of countries, of temporary migration, which is basically a labor migration, for a number of reasons. You can see there's been an increase, a significant increase, by seasonal workers in 16 OCD countries, intra-corporate transfers, posted workers, trainees, and working on the makers. So there's been again a significant increase in temporary migration flows. Again, this over and above uh, the discussion about the humanitarian flows themselves. Now, let's go to the what has been attracting a lot of attention. And this is a tremendous <coughs> increase in the number of people who moved, uh, the number of asylum seekers. You see here the increase for the entire OECD <coughs> in 2015. When were gonna look at the flows for 2016, that's a lot comparable to the one we have seen in 2015 for the same period of time. So from January to October of these two years, 2015 and 16. You can see that of course Germany, as we know very well, has been one of the countries that received more asylum seekers. <coughs> I think the point that also was made before, if you look at the per capita basis, there are countries like Sweden and a country like Austria that actually have received the largest number of asylum seekers. And of course, a number of them are now staying also as refugees. This, of course, has been one extremely increase uh, that we have seen over the past two years, and of course, uh, with that, brings significant challenges to provide immediate support to the asylum seekers and then to the process of actually uh, recognizing those who can stay as refugees. Now, I think that our discussion <laughs> impact should recognize that I think we are facing a number of uh, crises which are all interconnected together. The first is really that we are seeing, unfortunately, a number of conflict and crises in a number of countries close to Europe, with little prospect uh, uh, for improvement in the very short run. So the major major origin crisis is actually a persisting and looming geopolitical crisis. Related to that is also there is a strong concentration of asylum seekers in just a handful of entry points. And also, destination countries, I think raises a number of issues about the burden sharing, larger and meet needs for supporting refugees globally, and in some of the entry point countries, but also the countries in which the asylum seeker and the refugees go. So, I think we are facing a solidarity and coordination crisis, in particular in Europe. The third is actually this is increasing tension in the EU external borders. With, of course we know very well active smuggling networks and migrants taking increasing risk and possibly with intrusion also of those who come because they want to commit crimes, terrorist crimes. So there is a security crisis, which is again linked to the previous ones. And there are key building blocks of European migration asylum frame, framework, which are really challenges. There's been a lot of discussion about Schengen, but it's still valid and Dublin. So the risk of an institutional crisis but radio data is also an opinion, uh, sort of a trust crisis. Our people in many of the European countries are concerned as to whether policymakers, institutions, are actually able to cope with these large, humanitarian, and possibly unprecedented crisis. And last but sort of not least, uh, I think many countries that have received a large number of asylum seekers and a number of people <coughs> are staying as refugees are facing over- overwhelming challenges at the national, in particular at the local level, which I think is challenging fundamentally the ability of the countries to provide immediate support but also different steps which we know are very important in order to provide a kind of process of integration of those who are going to stay. Now, I think that's important to bear in mind these different multidimensional crises where we then focus on one of the important aspects which is the economic impact of migration. Now that's very difficult uh, to try to assess the impact at the country level, at the international level. We have done some work at UCD to try to look at that before <coughs> at the national economic crisis, before the humanitarian crisis, but also try to see how the financial crisis itself uh, has to some extent changed the picture. So the first point I'd like to make is actually that, and please look at the numbers on the first bullet of this uh, slide. Um, 47% of the increase in the labor force in the United States has been made of foreign-born people. 70%, percent 70 percent of the increase in the labor force in Europe has been made of people born abroad. So migration is a fact, an economic fact, of most of our countries, and I think without the significant inflows of people from foreign countries, we would not have been able to possibly pursue the possibility <coughs> of the have seen. They represent a much smaller proportion of the highly educated workforce, but they still represent a significant fraction. The new immigrants represent 50% of the entry into strongly growing occupation in Europe and 22% in the United States, and they also account for about a quarter of the entry in the strongly declining occupation. So they are both filling jobs at the top, (coughs) those jobs, occupation, which demand is the strongest, but also in those jobs where the demand overall is declining, but in where natives do not lie necessarily to work. If you look, in fact, at the bottom two charts, for Europe and for the United States, in which you can see where at the different composition, if you like, of the strongest increase in the size, a quintile, and the declining in the size, you can see that migrants actually are both on those expanding as well as in those declining. Right? So, again, they're filling jobs on both sides of increasing, rapidly growing sectors and occupation as well as in those occupations which are declining. Now, of course, the global financial economic crisis has a strong impact on the labor market <coughs> of many of the European and OECD countries. And had a disproportionate effect on the foreign board. largely because they were filling jobs and occupations in which the decline in demand was actually strong. So here you see, for the European countries, the gap in terms of the unemployment rate between the foreign born and the native born at the beginning of the crisis in 2008, about four and a half, 4.4 percentage point gap. And then you see that this gap has increased to more than six percentage point, and now it's back to about five percentage point. So migrants and foreign-born have been disproportionately affected by job losses. Many of them were in occupation hardly hit by the crisis. Many of them were holding less stable jobs, temporary, uh, other forms of atypical jobs. This is not the situation in the United States. Of course, the labor market institutional features are very different. You can see there that foreign-born and native-born actually follow more or less the same pattern. There is not a gap. Before the crisis, nor the gap has increased during the global financial crisis. The other point is that there are large differences in the employment <coughs> rate. We look at the number of people of are working who are in employment across the different countries, but also across different types of uh, skills. So you can see the gaps in the employment rate between the native board and the foreign board. You can see that the gaps actually tend to be small, sometimes actually negative, when we look at those with low skills. So foreign board tend to be to a even higher level of employment rate than the native board. But, of course, the gaps open up when you move from the low skill to the medium skill, and then from the medium skill to the high skill. That's where you see, actually, sometimes the gaps opening up, and in particular, Europe, where the gaps tend to be large. So, to some extent, Europe manages to provide opportunity for employment for the low skill. At the same level, if not even more than the native born with the same level of skills, there are more problems in terms of integrating into the labor market the high skill, where the employment rate tends to be lower than what we find for the native Now, let's move and try to summarize some of these into what can be the fiscal impact of migration. What we have here is actually a situation before the global financial economic crisis. We have done a model which we look at the different elements. So starting from the baseline, which we look at tax and benefits. Do actually migrants contribute more in terms of social security contribution and other income taxes than what they get in terms of benefits? Well, the answer is that overall for USD countries, the effect is actually fairly Positive. So, to some extent, the fiscal impact of migration is positive. Now, well, if we bring a sort of exclude pensions, but then we take into account also the per capita location of collectively approved items, then you see a situation actually decline. But basically, we are talking about a very small positive or a very small negative fiscal <coughs> impact of migration. This is across all OECD countries, there are significant <coughs> differences across the countries, and of course, that's a situation before the global financial economic crisis. If you recall what I just said about the fact that the crisis hit, uh, the foreign border migrants more than the native, you can imagine the fiscal impact has somewhat shifted. If we then take into account also the significant cost that most of the countries had to uh, cover for providing media support to the asylum seeker and to the refugees, then of course you can imagine that in the short term the fiscal impact may have deteriorated. In fact, if you look just at the data from 2006, 2008, just before the crisis, to the sort of the recovery period of 2010-2012, you can see it already that the fiscal balance has to some extent shifted a shift actually for the native board as well as for the foreign board in some countries there has been a more significant deterioration for the foreign board you see that again the impact is not necessarily extremely large so there are large variations of the countries depending on the impact on unemployment some change in the tax system, some change in contribution, the access to benefit which have evolved also during the global financial economic crisis. Again, from a slightly positive on average to a slightly negative, not a huge effect altogether. Um, what are the key challenges that we are facing? Of course, from what I showed you before, in terms of the multiple crises that Europe and the international community is facing, I think this will require some more time. So let me just highlight what I see some of the key challenges in the areas that may be of particular relevance. I think first of all, again, it is a trust crisis that we have to address. In this chart, you have uh, the number of people responding about the concern they have about immigration. You can see the difference between uh, immigration from within the EU, for European countries, and uh, immigration from outside the EU. You see the large gaps across <coughs> countries, and the number of people report that immigration per se, immigration per se, is a major source of concern. And that you see that a number of countries, of course, with a few exceptions, Portugal is one of them. Actually, the concern is much larger for people coming from outside the European Union, perhaps not surprising, than actually for those coming from within the European Union. I think we are facing an increasing gap between perception and reality. So communication about what are the facts, the we discussed this morning, in their view is very important. But I think this has to come not only from experts, but from broader uh, sort of community. Uh, and I think we have to populate, we have to present better, actually, what is the evidence. Second, I think that this is very important. Sometimes we are focusing, in my view, too much, on the aggregate effects. And we know very well that migration, per se, but also the ability to provide media support and integration of asylum seekers, in particular migrants, tend to be local. And there are large differences in the number of migrants, in the number of asylum seekers refugees that actually are in different communities, in different local areas. Some of them, with all the disposition to provide support, are definitely overwhelmed. So in the last issue of the international migration, how do we look at the local, the impact at the local level, but in particular, try to see how to govern uh, the management of migration from national policy, but also from local policies. And I think, again, Coordination between the national and local level, I think, is very important to try to reduce some of the tensions, to try to avoid some of the anxiety about in particular the migration crisis. Second point is that while sometimes we look at the longer term effect, I show you before the chart about uh, the impact, so the employment rate for native born and for foreign born. We should not omit the fact that it takes time for some of those who come into the host countries to integrate it into the labor market. What we have here, of course, is the employment rate for those who come from work, not surprising. Of course, they have a high employment rate from the beginning, they come because there's a job, or because at least there is a <coughs> possibility to find a job. But look at the other groups. When you look at those coming from study, of course, the employment rate at the beginning is low. They're still in the at work and, at the university of study. But then you see that the convergence actually is quite rapid with the duration of stay. Countries. Now, if you look at the other two categories, those who come in for family reunification, or those who come because they were refugees, you can see it takes a long time to actually reach something closer to the level of employment for those who came forward. Now, since here we are looking about 20 plus years, we look at history. So we look at those who actually came into those countries 20 years ago or more. And since then, a lot of progress has been made on policies to provide quicker integration to the labor market. So this to some extent depict perhaps a more or less sort of favorable scenario than what we might be facing going forward. But I think it's just a reminder that especially when we look at family reunification, especially when we look at refugees, it takes time before they can actually integrate into the labor market. But actually there is a lot that can be done to speed up that process. The second point is that it's not just a question of providing them access to the labor market. In my view, one of the major challenges is actually to recognize the skills and competence that migrants bring with themselves, their own talent. Here you have one possible estimate of the overqualification. So these are individuals in employment that are in occupation in which the level of qualification required is actually lower than what they have. There's a significant gap between their qualifications and the level that is in general required in that particular occupation. And you can see that in particular in Europe, for all foreign-born, with those with host-country education, is actually very low. Those with foreign education gets much higher, and then those with no EU education gets even higher. So of course, the issue here is actually regulation of the skills acquired and growth, better cooperation in terms of understanding the different curricula, or the different courses people may have called, the level of qualification of foreign-born compared to the native-born, this is a particular problem for small and medium sized enterprises who even more difficulty actually to understand and recognize what the qualification of individuals that come from abroad. And I think we need also to promote new language proficiency because one of the big impediments to have a full integration to the labor market is actually access to the language of the host country. That's a big issue. Precisely because, again, in countries which the employment rate of foreign born is fairly high, if not even <coughs> of the one of the native born, the basic skill mismatch tend to be, to be very large. Um, the other important point is actually integration for the first generation, that's what we been focusing on, but actually for the second generation, here you have one possible indicator, which is the results of the PISA, which is the, our international survey of the competence of 15 years old, and you can see. Uh, the mean uh, PISA score for reading scores, again here, are 15 years old, for the native born, with offspring, again, of native born. The native born from offspring for foreign born and those were born abroad, although they somewhat, at age 15, they were in school in the host country. Now see the difference across countries. Look at some of the European countries, in which is a huge gap in terms of educational achievement of the uh, foreign-born, in particular those who uh, um, were studying at least part of the education abroad, but even those who actually were born in the country, studying the country but with the parents of foreign origin. You see the huge gap on the mean PISA score, which is not the case where you go on the right-hand side of this chart and you have countries country like Australia and Canada, but also <coughs> anyway. so a lot can be done not only to provide uh, all the different efforts of integrating the foreign born who came as adults, but actually to make sure that the integration process also pulls into the education system, at least the second generation have the same chances (coughs) to apply the same level of education as the native born. Much to do do with parenting, the lack of ability of foreign born, sometimes low-skilled parents to provide the same support to the children that actually the native born can offer to them. So the school, World transition can be particularly problematic for many of the native born from foreign parents. Intergenerational persistence of disadvantage is a major issue that the European countries are facing, and I think this can have substantial long-term social economic costs. Of course, one of the best ways to ensure a positive fiscal impact is to ensure access to the labor market, is to ensure a good match job, but also, to some extent, make sure that the children of the migrants can have access to the same quality level of education but can guarantee them to good results in the education system. So these are some of the points I want to share with you just again to provide you with some facts, some of the evidence, and of course I very much look forward to our discussion. Today. Thank you very
0: much. You, okay, let me repeat the same thing. We can take a couple of questions from the floor it's here. <laughs> Can we have the mic?
3: Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The uh, called Geisel Association of German SMEs. You showed a survey there... of 2014 about concerns in a number of European countries uh, about migration, and uh, Poland and Germany concerns were very low in 2014. I wonder that whether this is still 100% valid for Poland and Germany. New
5: York uh, Jörg in IMF um, this is a clarification question you showed two charts on migration flows initially one which suggested that migration flows fluctuate but not that much where migration in 2015 seemed to be back to where it was pre-crisis and then you show the slide on asylum seekers where you see a really large increase Uh, Is this just a large increase in uh, a much larger set, uh, much larger sized flow of overall migration, or is there something I don't understand between these two uh, data sources? Thank you. Okay.
0: Any question there?
6: Just one question more. Uh, Hello, Matthew Newton from Generali. Perhaps
7: it's outside the scope of the data, but it's really a question for both you and Anna. And how much of this migration are people looking to? to settle for a period of time and then return to their, 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 their country of origin. So, looking to acquire whether it's you know financial benefits or other skills and then return back to their
6: their their uh, country of origin.
0: Okay. Then can I also add a, a question here on the there are some starting differences between the EU and and the US your unemployment graph was very telling, but it goes beyond that because even to the PISA uh, scores the overqualification scores what what types of things drive these differences and why is the US so much better in in integrating um, Foreigners and foreign-born into the labor market Let's take a quick response in five minutes, and then we we'll come back at the end.
5: Yeah. Uh, the first question was a very important one, and the opinion poll. I'll show you the latest information we have, 2014. No. This was the year before yes. the onset of the humanitarian refugee crisis, yes. so you are right. Uh, some of the low concern that some country population in this country expressed in 2014, was before the major inflows. And this, I think, is certainly true in Poland, <coughs> you know uh, and we know also in Germany to some extent. But let me tell you that the country that has received the largest number per capita of asylum seekers is actually Sweden. And in Sweden, because of the long-standing policy to receive asylum seeker refugees and integrating them, those who are going to stay, there has not been a major deterioration in the concerns of the population about these large, again, the largest in terms of per capita that they've seen. So I think a lot can be done in terms of communicating, but also I think the point I was making is that we have to learn the lessons (coughs) of this humanitarian crisis to build the institution that may be there needed when a major crisis hits again. And unfortunately, from the geopolitical situation I was quickly describing before, we might be facing other geopolitical crises, which may lead to some increase in the flows. So to some extent, I think it's good to take stock of the good practice that do exist in many, including European countries, to prepare ourselves for when the not although we are still facing a large inflow which brings me to the second point I think we have to make a distinction between permanent flows for different reasons work, family unification, and so on and so forth from the, again, the marital flows of desire of the city the point I want to make here is that Even at the same time, when we have seen a a significant, large influx—1.5 1.5 million to the country, 1.1 million just in Europe in 2015, of people coming because they were fleeing their own country because of violence and the risk their life in the the, the journey, we have seen at the same time an increase in permanent flows. So to some extent, many countries, many OECD countries, including many European countries, need these foreign world people. Because of the rapid age of the population, because there is a demand for them. Some of them came because of family reunification. Some of them came for work, some of them came for study, and then they stayed on into their own country. So I think it is important to put in perspective, if you like, the humanitarian uh, flows into an underlying process of increasing flow <coughs> of permanent migrants. Just to give you one example, the number of permanent migrants in Germany <coughs> doubled in the number of few years, in early 2010, 2014, 15. at the same time in which Germany was then willing to accept a large number of asylum seekers. There is a no difference, one is a monetary reason, over the above economic reasons, but I think it is important to put the humanitarian flows, which are overwhelming, and of course have to be addressed also for a humanitarian reason, over and above the possible economic reasons. Uh, which is the other element is also distinguishing between permanent flows, those who come to stay in the country for a certain number of years, not for the entire working life, for a certain number of years, and those who are, by definition, temporary flows. So, those who come for a period well defined period of time and a permit which actually has a limited duration. And these have gone up again. So, again, maybe if you want to find signals of the labor demand in a number of OECD countries, you see an increase in 2014 2015. Again, over and above the migration. Now, the difference between the uh, European Union and the United States, you see a significant difference across a wide range of different dimensions. Actually, what I'd like to you to think more is about the difference within Europe.
8: Absolutely. So, yes,
5: if you take the averages in and then you compare that with the U.S., you do find differences in terms of employment rate, rate, in terms of uh, skill mismatch, in terms of employment rate by different level of skills, and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of variation in Europe, and I think European countries can learn from each other a lot. But I think the policy of integration has to be access to language, first of all, has to be access to the labor market, skill recognition, and here I think many European countries can give a lot of very good practices that others can follow. We need an integrated strategy that really looks at the labor market, social policy, education, and training and retraining programs. And I think, again, the challenges differ from one country to the other. In 2015, that was... We issued a report in 2015 in July, so before the really large inflows of asylum seekers, with some of the lessons from integration. And actually, we look again at (coughs) education, (coughs) labor market, social policies, housing, and so on and so forth. And we came up with ten broad lessons. But within these broad lessons, many of the good practices come from European countries. So I think European... Union and members of the European Union to learn a lot from each other about what are some successful programs. You need to really have a strategy, a holistic approach, and you live actually to have the right institution in place. I think many European countries were basically overwhelmed by the size and the timing of the humanitarian crisis also because they were lacking the underlying institutions. Not only at the national level, but actually at the local level. And some of the problems were damp at the local level without actually them. The local community being able to have the resources, the infrastructure, the ability, (coughs) the connection between different, again, policy makers, civil society, and so on and so forth, to actually cope with these these overwhelming flows. But actually, if you look at the local communities, there's a lot to be learned. One of the best things we've done, I think, at the UCD last year, in cooperation with many other institutions, including, of course, the European Union, was actually to facilitate this dialogue among the experience at the national level, but actually at the local level. (coughs) By doing that, we discovered there's a lot an overwhelming number of good practices that at the local level as well as at the national level can be forward. There's a lot to be learned from that.
0: Yes, one last question. Yeah.
5: Hello, this is
8: Australian Government. On the last slide on the educational performance of the children of immigrants, there was a huge difference, uh, in, uh, very interesting, in, in Australia where the, the children of immigrants did much better
5: than the native population. Could you explain yeah. a bit why? What's the reason for it? Well, I think one of the reasons, this was just a summary, is the composition of the first generation. The extent to which we have, like Australia, a significant, these are talking about largely permanent migration flows. And the point system and a very specific immigration policy, Australia also attracted a number of high-skilled Migrants. And of course, they are better able to basically also support their children. That's one element, but it's not <coughs> the only story. The other story is that in most of the countries, uh, there is a wide heterogeneity of the social economic background of the children of foreign born migrants. Uh, some of them come from low social economic background. They tend to go to the living poor neighbourhood. Tend to go to low-quality schools, and therefore they might not achieve the same outcomes. So, a number of countries are putting specific resources, not just in schools in which there are high concentration of foreign-born or children of foreign-born parents, but actually disadvantaged school altogether, whether for native-born or for foreign-born. And I think this specific focus, the targeting of disadvantaged. Context and disadvantaged school is a way in which you tend to reduce the heterogeneity in education outcome. Which of course serves, helps a lot of the migrants but actually serves actually those coming from low social background, whether or not they actually are from foreign-born parents or not. So deliberate point to try to reduce this huge heterogeneity in education outcome. What they showed you before, and I was, you know, I got France, Belgium, and so on and so forth, this actually reveal what is a huge heterogeneity in education outcome even if we only focus on 84, before in this country. What so can in to reduce this heterogeneity by investing in the least
0: favorable areas and schools? Okay, let's leave it here and give Alessandra also a chance to talk and we'll come back to, to questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I would like
8: to thank Google for education and uh, the previous speaker, Am uh-huh. I working? No, on the other side. Okay. Uh, I would say instead to be a, today to go, do a general overview to try to choose four subjects on which I can say to add something on what already been said, which is already a lot. So the importance of demographic in the demand for migrant. The dynamic of integration process, something on the refugees and the difficulty communication. The research results, <laughs> and in this field, of the MPC has done some research, which is uh, which is interesting. Everybody knows that Europe is aging and is aging as an effect on the composition and on the size of the population. The composition means that the old people are increasing. Usually to say that the, the share of the early, uh, old population is increasing, we use the old dependency ratio, which is the people that are 65 years old and more over the working age population. However, this measure is more useful, for which is this one, which is really alarming, is more useful for pension studies, that to understand the demand for migrants. For my to understand instead the impact on migrants is more useful, well, okay, I don't know how to point. Anyhow, this what we call the super old age dependency rate. So the people that are above 75 years old over the people on 20 and 75 years old. The number is less alarming than the one before, that we showed before that was around 40 percent, 40-45%. Is just in the future will grow the share of people above 75 and reach something like 15% in the 2030. And why we look at this this um, age? Because the morbidity rate for the people, the red one, is much higher than the one of the people 65. And especially the use of the health system after 75 is much higher. And the demand for care services for old age people I insisted with my research assistant, when we worked on this, uh, to put 75, because I started at my 60. I don't think that I need a caregiver until now. But anyhow, the results are uh, absolutely striking. So the demand of care service will increase. The demand of caregiver will be in the public, in the private sector, and also in the family according to the type of welfare system that is prevailing in each economy. In South European country, but also in Eastern European country, the welfare is provided by the family. Who is taking care of children, old age people, and so on? The family. It's not like in Sweden, the state, or in other institutions, the private sector. But the demand of um, caregiver for the elderly will increase also because the female or the people working at home will reduce. Women will enter in the labor market uh, and they will be enabled to take care of people. So, this is this decline. We have done a small study with the European countries, the 14 old member of the European Union, and of course, the unemployment in active female has a negative effect on the demand of caregiver. The expenditure, the older 75, has a strong effect. So they are all elasticity, and the expenditure of of course, with an exception of the Nordic country, which has a lower impact, and so on. So, The demand is very high. We try to make forecasts. The ILO is doing, as well, forecasts of domestic work, but this is just to say that there is a clear demand for medium-low-skilled people that will enter in the labour market for work or that can be also family member. Many family members are in search of jobs, and there is no attention in their skill or they training them for the, skill for the jobs demanded in the labor market. And in fact, this research is going on. We use the new Eurostat 2014 release to understand how these people enter the country and if something can be done to better match the people that arrive for other reasons with the demand of the labor market. Uh, because as Stefano Scarpetta was shown, also the family member takes up them, want to work and it's very difficult to make them profitable for the liberal market. But the age of the population is also not only increasing the share of the old people, is reducing the share of the young people. It's shrinking, the young people are shrinking. This has a consumption dimension, but it also mainly have an investment dimension and something that Philip Farr called the aging of skills. There is a large debate on this. And um, of course, uh, uh, innovation is part of this scenario. If we look at the innovation, these are the patents, and you see Europe is the orange line, the yellow one is Korea, and China is the green one, is increasing. Japan in decline. United States is still there. If you take the total factor productivity, the story is the same. In Europe needs innovation. If we need innovation in different measure that we can use. We sorry. We need young people, and the research that we have done it shows that there is a young dividend. This is the European population average age in two thousand fifteen and two thousand thirty five. You see, which is above will be above forty seven years old, while now is forty three years old. And when we look at the age at um, Innovation, so the the phase of life in which people are producing more innovative goods, Nobel Prize, great inventor, this is always below 40s. Even if it is pushing a little bit ahead, is below 40. So we need young people. Europe needs young people because they are competing with young countries, Korea. China? No, China is not so, so very young now anymore, but uh, so we need young people. And we have um, done, and migrants are the only young people that enter in the country because the average identities of migrants in China are 30 years old. So. We need uh, young migrants, in general, highly skilled. We have done research on this. So usually, economists study a lot the effect of migration on innovation patent, total factor productivity and so on, but they just use diversity, this very fancy variable, um, in which you sell diversity of and so, But don't use age. Instead, we de- use the, this old traditional approach that is done. In addition, we put age. And what well the result is very strong, that there is a young age dividend, foreigner, young foreigner in the high-tech sector, favor innovation. And while for natives, the effect is much lower. In the other sector, in the service sector, instead it seems that experience is more important. And we studied just three countries, Germany, uh, UK, and France, because the other country innovation is less important than in this. So Europe need migrants for innovation, need young, highly skilled migrants. So we just said that Europe need for the care sector, medium age, young, uh, the age is not relevant, temporary or permanent, medium skill, and young, highly skilled for the innovation sector. In addition, if we look at the size of the um, Europe we we'll see that if there are no immigration in this scenario without with no migration, the population will move from three hundred million to two hundred and fifty million if we had the same migration that we had now the same inflow similar migration we reach uh, a, a smaller amount than the, one, the stock that we had now which is uh, less than 300 million but the uh, but it is always smaller, so the total size of Europe euro is decreasing. Um, you can say it's better, we are too many, we don't have, have enough resources, but you there is also a political dimension of being too small. Um, the stock of your working population is reducing at the rate of 9.5 percent every 10 years without migration is that we are, with the similar inflow, we are re- is reducing at the rate of 4.5. So this is the reason just to say that uh, Europe need migration and if we use the traditional analysis that demographer use, that's mean, say, what is the replacement date? So there are people are dying or leaving and the people that are arriving. The observer migration is the blue line the uh, red line is what sh- the inflow that are needed to, remain, to have a stable population. <laughs> and as you see, with the exception of France and UK, all the other countries are shrinking because the inflow are smaller than uh, the people that are dying. Are, the exit from the population, let us say which is less and nicer than the other one. And the same for Bulgaria, Portugal, yeah. I
1: was gonna say Eastern Europe looks worse. Though. Sorry? Some of the Eastern European countries look worse.
8: Than- yes. And so this is the problem that Europe needs migrants for many reasons and need migrants all different for different reasons. So for care, and so different quality and so on. But if Europe decides that they need migrants, and they need, okay, they can have temporary migrant, but they also need permanent migrant because it's a proper size population you need to, new citizen, new European citizen. We have to revise the integration policy since the beginning. And now look only at the labor market integration because I'm an economist even if, if I spend all my time with social science demography and so on. But the things, and the integration process, this is the second point is very complex. When I see best best practice, I faint all the time. Yes, because a good practice in one country is not working in another one. Unfortunately, Europe is very, very different. I absolutely agree with what Stefano Scarpetta said, but he is very well aware that we have very different labour markets functioning. We have different institutions, different role of trade unions. Also in high trade union countries, now trade unions are weaker, but the legislation are different. The demand is different. We have different migration policy. This is part of a project, of a research project that the MPC has done, which is called Interact, in which we try to understand the integration and all the integration pro- process. Integr- integration policy arrive at the end. When the process is already completed, and some is, something is not working. But these are filters that determine the integration. Okay, Um, we just start from the labor market. Labor market function is very important legislation, but also the implementation. Because Stefano Scarpetta before was exactly stressing with different wording from what I'm using the management of the legislation, the implementation. How many functionaries are there? The human capital, the functioner. When I always speak with Uta Bock, who is the Vice Director of the German Employment Migration Refugees Office in Berlin, I would like to work in Germany because Germany seems wonderland. You want just to work, everything is organized for you. Instead, in other countries, not probably she's very nice insane, saying, I don't know, but the result is that in Germany, you have 4% of unemployment rates. In Italy, you have 12%. Uh, percent forty in the uh, twenty in the south forty four among the young. So some functioning is very different. So there is also the composition of the demand. This is uh, another research that we have done in the MPC. This is a case of Italy. If you tell, this is the traditional uh, integration path. This is the wage profile of uh, a native with the same characteristic of the migrant that entering the labor market in the same time. This is the wage profile after 12 13 years. These instead are the what's it called migrant job, the first quartile of the income distribution. When you enter in this job at the beginning, knowing it is not important if you are natives, migrant from the south in Italy or foreigner, You remain stuck there in this profile all the time. The only possibility of exiting from this uh, labor market is linguistic ability. The only variable that allows you to exit from this type of job where there are 70% of migrants is the linguistic ability. Of course, if you work in the caregiver sector, if you work in the, metal, in the construction sector, if you work in the agriculture sector, which chance you have to upgrade, to have another wage, to move from this, one of the most important values, as Stefano Scarpetto has already said this in a more uh, clear, prob- way, is the linguistic ability. We have done this by lingu- different linguistic distance, so there is this indicator. Of course, the profile differ. Chinese are, uh, the more far, they are, have a lower profile, while the, um, the Romanian have a, a more linguistic procedure have a higher profile. But what this um, table uh, figures also say, something very important, that the idea of transit immediately from uh, unemployment to employment, the idea that is now is put forward also for refugees, bring them immediately to the labor market, is perfect. But if you bring that to this type of jobs, remember that you have to revise all the training procedure because you, do not, you have to revise, because usually you do the training, tailored training for refugees, for migrants, before the entrance into the labor market. Now instead, if you think that it's better for them, for their psychological stability, self-esteem, and so on, to transfer them immediately, as soon as you can into the labor market, you have to follow them. You have to organize a training one day a week, one way every two weeks, one way every three weeks, a long life training, long life support to help them to improve the language ability to see other option in the labor market, otherwise they will remain there, even if they are engineer or they are philosopher, whatever they are, because they don't improve the language ability in this type of job that are easily found when they arrive. Um, So this is what I want to say. If we look at the migration policy, of course the migration policy is another important uh, filter because it's important who you like to enter. The migration policy is selection, UK is favoring highly skilled migrants, Italy is, has uh, seven legalizations, so of course uh, Spain and Greece uh, as well. So uh, you enter from the back door, of course the selection don't exist. But uh, uh, the citizenship, the legislation which affects the selection, which is also very important. Um, I'm very glad that Stefan already mentioned a lot of the family reunification because the OECD has done many research on this. They have two, general, two divisions doing migration, the one of Jean-Christophe Dumont on the OECD country and the other of David Coudour on developing countries. So the knowledge that you have there is fantastic. This is the stock. Here shown the flow. These are the stock. The stock as entrance and the stock in the labor market. As you see, in all the immigration countries with this at the new immigration country, the family member are the most important. However, the economists keep on all, all the time speaking only on labor demand. Instead, they don't watch at the family member as potential workers, and I will explain a little bit later, because at the end, when we look at the labor market, this is again from lemetre of the OECD, the people that has more, Brain waste are the family member and the refugees. That's mean that means that at the end we look at the total migrant and the brain waste. We take family member as labor migrant, and instead we should. This is just um, the amnesty in Italy. Just to say another example, and if we. Um, want to compare the selection and the labor market, which is stronger among them. You say selection, migration policy of course is stronger. Well, everybody believes that migration policy is the one that determines the future of migration. Look at this, OECD again. eh? You have the UK in which the share of tertiary educated is much, migrant is much higher than the share of native tertiary educated. That means that the selection is working. They allowed in more tertiary educated. Okay? While well, this Spain, Italy, and Greece, of course, the back door, the highly skilled don't go there. So there is no selection in this. But when you work, look at the overqualification, you find that the migrant, the highly educated uh, foreigner find the job in UK. So the market finds a job for them. So the selection is just because there is the demand. So this, the labor market is much stronger than the selection. Even if you do not have a selective migration policy, you will have occupation for While instead in Spain, Italy, and Greece, you have the opposite. There, is no sele- there, is, there are very few highly skilled. The few highly skilled don't find a highly skilled job. So I think that uh, this is just to stress how important is the interaction between migration policy and the uh, uh, structure of the labor market, functioning of the labor market. But the, the project that we were running was on the fact of the country of origin in this process. The NPC is a center that re- deserves a lot of attention to the country of origin, and the interact project was on this. And the idea is that try to understand that integration is starting in the origin country, not in the destination country. Filipinos government, what is doing? They have the narrative of this super maid, which is the narrative that they sell around the world, and to to leave, you need the permission of the government, you need a visa, and you have to sub- be submitted to a pre-departed training in which they train you, they, leg- they teach you the legislation, the language, the habit of the country destination. This is increasing the probability of finding a job. In addition, they have associations that work also in the destination country to help to support the Filipinos community, provide legal support, job matching, and so on. But this is important also for the family member. However, the governor very important because they can write bilateral agreement with the with the country of this nation. The project Interact was exactly on this. We have many countries, many cases, different policies and so on. The important thing is also the narrative of the country has changed now. Both Morocco and Turkey were, is, has established a minister for the community abroad. India has the Moi, and also Turkey has another ministry. But the narrative has changed well before Moroccan was selling this today migrant, the story that you will be Moroccan all the time. You can come back and you want Any anytime there will be space for you at home. This will end. In addition, the King of Morocco was forbidding the, the, uh, the Moroccan in the Netherlands to vote for the local election. In this way, they were attracting them home and keeping the remittances as a way of feeling them, uh, keeping them attached to the country. And instead now, they understood that there is no way that the Moroccans are going home have a a place, a space in the economy. There is no space for them. And uh, in this way, they were discouraging the investment of the children. So they are selling a new story. You are our ambassador abroad. Your children should be very clever at school. They should, you should be, you should promote our product, our economy. In this way, pushing the citizen to integrate into the country of destination still remain Moroccan. As you know, you remain Moroccan for all the life. You never lose the nationality. You can be British, German, French. You can have a seven passport. You never lose the Moroccan passport. And also, Turkey was um, allows now the double citizenship. So and organize also this Turkish committee and so on. So does it say that the country of origin is playing an important role and that the country of destination, if they want to in- in favor the integration, they have to um, organize with the country of origin. Two minutes, yes, I think. This is just a, re- a result in which we were, of the project in which we were showing that Filipino the importance of the country of origin. Okay, uh, this is uh, the integration policy. Of course, uh, uh, there is too much attention to the policy and too little to the managing, The money invested in the personnel, the human capital, people. Just uh, one word on refugees. Uh, the shock that Europe is facing and the world is facing is um, too large for the size of the refugees that Europe is having. The majority of the refugees are in the in the developing countries they are not in Europe. And it's probably, as uh, Stefano mentioned before, the unpredictability, the complexity of the responsibility that created this problem. However, the shock of the refugee will be nothing compared to the future shock for the youth bulge in Africa. So it's something that Euro should. Uh, Approach refugee story is very simple. You, uh, everybody, agree that we should increase resettlement. Now, 100,000 for UNHCR is too little. 90,000 are going to United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, while and only 10,000 to Europe, it is ridiculous in comparison to the number of people ride by sea or by land, but especially other countries should be involved, Russia and China. China is an important agent of uh, development in Africa and in the world, so they should be more uh, involved in this project. They should be the main uh, um, gate, for entrance of uh, refugees. We need a, a joint control for first assistance at the border. this is common knowledge, a relocation into, the, uh, into uh, the relocation into the European countries to reduce the cost for the border country. They use all their resources, public and public public, uh, public and private in the first assistance. and after they have no resources for integration. And this, we, as our um, chair has suggested to discuss the future implication, uh, this is the problem that destination country refugees, especially uh, Germany, and to, they invest in integrating the migrants. The result, there will be a two-speed euro, is already there. In North Europe, you have highly skilled migrants. in South Europe, you have only low, low skill and medium skill. This, the economy is growing more, innovation, the other is surviving. In addition, for, my, for refugees, the same story, because the, not they have highly skilled low skilled, but they can invest. If I'm not wrong, 12 millions that Germany are investing in integrating the refugees. The training courses that Italy is providing for the refugees are paid by the Euro, European Social Fund. Nothing. Um, the last point is the international solidarity. The plan is clear, but what happened? That is an action phase in Europe. So it will be difficult to go ahead with this plan. We can have a show. Oh, sorry. A short run program, try to forecast. Reduce the short run cost for border countries with a joint management. Increase the forecasting ability of the UNHCR using the formation of internally displaced people. We know how many they are. These are the World Conference. These are all the people displaced, and so on. The uh, United States providing this type of information. So, using this, we can do a lot to to anticipate the most, the largest cost, which is in the management. And in addition, the process would be multilateral. Also. Russia and China should be involved in this. I skip a just last word, last word on the communication. Stefano Scarpetti already mentioned, the pro is that in the past, researcher were well, just state, the first before they were providing research results, facts to politician, a politician, and they were providing research facts to the public, but the public was res, less uh, relevant in the debate. And especially now the public reacts only to emotion. They don't care about facts and information. If you have a TV show, you have a scientist that is invited, he's speaking for 15 minutes, trying to explain detail and so on, and somebody writes there, I don't believe so, because my cousin is, has a different experience. This is the debate. We have to face this. And what economists do? Nothing. Because the economy are able to work in this this way. They produce result, model, and so on. Instead, politologists and social scientists, they try to change their communication. They do video. I don't know if they are able to help politicians in managing the public, but at least they try to adjust to the new system of communication. We'll, I have the feeling sometimes that we are like Cassandra. We know mm-hmm. what will happen, but nobody believes it. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, in view of the time, let's just open up the floor to all the panel if we, uh, if we can answer questions. Or, comment. or comments. Here at the back. Yeah, the back
5: first,
7: and then here. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, Professor Linson from the MNRC. Um Very quickly um, skills. Well, um, I feel very uncomfortable when people speak of skills today. Uh, As I often say, well, perhaps the um, worldwide – well, to our mind, the worldwide educational system is perhaps the greatest swindle of all times, because we have made a thorough mess of this world, and no one knows what to do, face it. Um, The second thing is, don't you think there is a need – I mean, migration is a global challenge. Don't you think that in order to be appropriately managed, there is a need to set up a new global governance infrastructure? Lastly, a very, very short story. I, I, um, I'm based in Flanders, in a region that has become strongly nationalist. I had a conversation with an engineer who came for an electricity uh, urgency, and we had um, a small discussion. Then he spoke of migration. And he was very um, worried about migration, about um, the migrants, because they are disrupting diversity. They are bringing over bugs and diseases. Ugh. I mean, it's it's frightening to listen to uh, to hear someone speaking like that. Thank you. There's a question here? If, um, we'll take a we'll
0: take a we'll collect a few questions
4: and then we'll have a around. Yeah. Um, Carlo Monticelli, Council of Europe Development Bank. Now, one policy prescription that has clearly emerged from all the presentation is that uh, the investment uh, in uh, Education, most importantly language skills, uh, is uh, key uh, to make uh, immigration work for, for all, both immigrants and uh, then adding uh, and contributing positively to the uh, income generation in the country. Um, now. There is a big resistance to any form of investment uh, into uh, integration in, in, of public resources coming from uh, misplaced uh, uh, equity arguments. You know, basically, um, residents, uh, especially of uh, uh, low income, low skill, uh, make the point that uh, the short well the small public resources available for education social investment social housing more generally should be first devoted to nationals now what uh, uh, are the rational arguments uh, that uh, you put forward uh, you would and this is here uh, to pick the brain of each uh, to to uh, <coughs> of all the panelists uh, to Give uh, rational ammunition then uh, to those who make the claim uh, for making this uh, uh, for the importance of this investment. And of course, uh, there are emotions, there are uh, political skills uh, that uh, are needed to convince uh, 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 population to to make the argument. But uh, at the end of the day, history shows uh, that in various uh, difficult policy issues, uh, the argument of enlightened, uh, s- based on enlightened self interest, uh, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. is uh, really the most uh, powerful one. So okay. I would
2: like you to, uh, to
0: elaborate on
4: that.
2: Thanks.
0: Here,
4: uh, Marek. Has
2: it, Marek, you got a question? Just here. Ah, okay, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Do we d- discuss all three? Uh, yes, all three yeah. now. Uh, all three. I have uh, comments to, to first and second presentation. Regarding first presentation, uh, I think that uh, measurement uh, uh, issue is quite important. It, it was why I asked about GNI. Uh, I think still that, that even if G, uh, based on GNI statistics, the conclusion remain more or less the same. But as you mentioned, the magnitude of it is it's different. I uh, I think this is important because. Um, <coughs> Generally, from purely economic point of view, we may consider export of labor as sort of export of services as part of the comparative advantage of a given country. So, so this one thing. The second thing is regard, uh, which we didn't discuss uh, too much, is this uh, CIS story, which you, my understanding is that there's only four countries which uh, European department covers. Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova also covers uh, uh, Southern uh, Caucasian and and, uh, Central Asia. So this is uh, the question, because probably aggregate is very much influenced by Russia, which is a net importing country, while many other countries are even more exporting labor than than, 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 uh, some southern, southeastern European countries. And final um, question regarding the second presentation is uh, uh, this um, graph when you demonstrated uh, uh, PISA results. Is it not the question that countries to the right side of your uh, figure uh, are the English-speaking country? And this makes adaptation of students easier because this is more frequently spoken language. It was this it it prob- right.
0: yeah.
2: maybe this is a question yeah here.
0: thanks mark well, so and the gentleman on the back here
3: yeah. well i i have uh, two questions one is uh, to the second presentation you had uh, i thought the most striking number was uh sorry the the the, the most striking number i thought was um, that low qualified foreign-born people in the u.s actually have much much higher uh, uh, job participation than than U.S. residents and uh, I was wondering whether you, you can comment a little bit on this, also in light of course of the recent election which supposedly was won in, in that segment of society. Now, the second question is perhaps a more complicated one which is um, related to cultural factors. Uh, when you have this kind of presentations and you, you bring this to, let's say, a citizen um, and uh, let's say, talk to family members or whatever in Germany. Uh, one, one of the things they will tell you is that, and that's an, a question addressed to all of you, is that, well, the numbers uh, based on, let's say, immigration from uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe or Asia, uh, China, Vietnam, and so on, are not at all comparable to the numbers from Arab immigrants. And then the, the argument goes that uh, essentially um, uh, cultural differences... Islam uh, and so on are major obstacles to to integration and these cultural uh, uh, obstacles are Obstacles on both sides. I mean they are obstacles on the side of of course the receiving uh, communities that For start don't even start to to hire a person that comes with with an Arab name Don't even invite that person to to an interview, but of course also from the other side So the argument um, that that this person um, you know, doesn't, doesn't comply with, um, let's say, the same set of values that are needed in, in certain jobs. So, so the argument really is very strong, strongly given by, by citizens, and I haven't seen this at all in any of the presentations, so I would be very interested, you know, what kind of evidence do we actually have on these cultural factors for yeah. integration, uh, the ability to integrate into labor markets. Thank, Thank you very much. Well. Well.
0: And then there's a question at the back there.
6: Just two questions, and then we turn it back to the panel at the back. You go first. Hi, okay. Philip Tanai, policy analyst at DG Employment. So, just a, que- a quick question for um, Anna Elena. It seemed to me—I mean, we kind of—you briefly touched upon it—but it seems to me that you found finally the the holy grail for the eurosceptic, the evidence for welfare tourism. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how, does, how, how did it, that happen, actually? I mean, how uh, how is it calculated? Because also from the graph, it seems like most of the Eastern European migration went to the UK, went to Germany. We know that on average they're more highly skilled. We know that they don't necessarily have the most generous welfare systems that exist. And also just wondering, like, how, how were you able to distinguish between what the high-skilled migrants look for as opposed to the low-skilled ones. Thanks. Thank you.
0: And then
2: one final question there. Uh, Just to add an effect from the German point of view, uh, robotization, even in the care sector, and naturally cultural acceptance, will strongly affect the demand from the German side concerning migrants from the EU that's okay, more or less accepted, but big question marks concerning migration from um, cultural spheres outside of the EU.
0: Okay, well, let's let's take it back to the panel. Uh, Anna, would you like to go first or take turns again to, uh, to answer, um, to
1: speak what you think is addressed to you? Sure, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to um, briefly respond to, I think there were two, two questions. So one question was, uh, the most straightforward one <laughs> on which are the countries that are in- included in the CIS group. Uh, and in most charts, we actually don't lump them together. So you may have noticed that we do have that sub-region, but we show separately all the, all the four European CIS countries. So those are the ones that, that, that we look at that are part of Eastern Europe format. Um, on your question regarding GNI ver- per capita versus GDP per capita, I think both are important, and we, we should indeed look at both. Uh, GDP per capita is uh, relevant if we want to assess the uh, the impact of emigration on the country's economic potential on the sending country itself not just you know take into account the welfare of everybody who was born in that country but maybe living abroad and you know doing quite well so that that would be GNI but um, because uh, again one of the things that we looked at uh, you've seen is you um, uh, for example, the share of social spending, including on pensions and uh, healthcare, uh, uh, relative to G- GDP. And if you have a, a large aging population, uh, and most of the older people are actually not going anywhere, they are staying in the country and shrinking GDP. That puts a substantial burden on on on, on the budgets uh, in this country. It's just one example <coughs> of you know why it. It, it, it does make sense to look at both GNI and GDP impact of emigration. And so the, the, there was also a question on push pull factors and uh, the, 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 the finding that for a lower skilled uh, migrants, uh, the availability and sort of size of social benefits in the receiving countries is relatively more important. I mean, this is relatively more means that other factors are important as well. It's just that for um, skilled ones, we do not find this to be as important as for the low-skilled. And uh, basically, the way it's done is that we, we just do the same exercise for uh, low-skilled migration flows, and then we sort of repeat it for, higher, for uh, skilled migration flows, and just basically report the, the results. That's, uh, yeah, and the, 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 data, the data, database comes from a, a study uh, that was done, I think, uh, a couple of years ago uh, by several academics, and they put together a very detailed data set from multiple sources that also has a, a skill composition. The skill there, again, you know, I mentioned uh, the way we use the d- definition of skill. It's just purely based on education. So it's not, not, nothing else but just the level of education there. Yeah. Mm-hmm
8: is medium and high. Yes, skilled, when we
1: say skilled, it's secondary and tertiary education. No. Yes. Which is not standard,
0: yes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Stefan, would you like to yeah, sure. respond to...
5: Uh... <clears throat> um, let me just uh, uh, pick up on some of the questions. The first was uh, whether or not we have the adequate international infrastructure for handling large uh, humanitarian crises like the one we have been seeing. Actually, we are still seeing. And the answer, in my view, is absolutely yes. I think these recent humanitarian crisis simply revealed that the international cooperation and architecture is not at all adequate to mm-hmm. the challenges we are facing. Not, uh, not adequate, yeah. uh, if you look at the United Nations Summit on Migration Refugee Refugees that was held in early September, it was a first step into promoting a global dialogue on how to handle the humanitarian refugee crisis. There is a plan, but then the action plan will be developed to put in place only in 2018. So to some extent, two years down the road. Yeah. There was a a summit that was organized by President Obama to actually ask country to make a concrete commitment on how to provide a solution to the humanitarian crisis. And I think this was a very good step. We shall see how this will be taken forward by the new administration. But I think this humanitarian crisis, and if you believe what I said before, that we are going possibly to face new geopolitical shocks leading to migration flows, I think the lesson we have learned is that we definitely need to strengthen international cooperation. But let me make the point very clear is that this should not be an excuse not to <coughs> develop national policies and not for Europe to actually work together to find uh, some global solution as well as helping those countries who are on the front line in terms of first countries receiving uh, large flows of humanitarian migrants. Uh, The second point that was made about uh, how can we make the economic case for investing on integration. You were mentioning about language training programs, but actually this goes beyond other different programs that are needed in order to promote the integration. I think here we should make a distinction between uh, permanent migration and, if you like, refugees. In the case of permanent migration, there is an economic case, first of all, because as I said before, 70% of the increase in the workforce, in the labor force in Europe in the past decade has been of foreign board. So Europe is already needing a lot of foreign board in order to sustain its process of economic growth. If you believe that in order to promote the integration to the labor market, you have to give them access to the language of those countries, then I think the economic case starts building up. In the case of the refugees, and here we are talking about those who are likely to stay for a number of years. Those who have flown, they've left their country because of violence, they've taken huge risk. Some of them will stay for a number of years. If they have a refugee status, and if you think it is important to actually get them access to the labor market, again, language courses will be one of the entry points in terms of the integration process. Let me say that, frankly speaking, some of these language courses are pretty cheap. You're not talking about huge, spending a huge amount of money. Some country. Sweden and Germany, actually using some of the migrants themselves, the refugees themselves to help their own fellow countrymen. Syrians teacher to speak language actually are teaching their own Syrians fellow the language of those countries if they do know that language. So there's a lot that can be done, a lot of lessons that can be learned. But in the case of the integration of refugees I think we should not just focus on the, the economic re- rationale we have also bring in the humanitarian rationale what is the alternative what is the alternative for these people? Do you want them to be integrated? You don't want them sitting around and receiving some sum of support? Or in the case in which the economic situation, the, geopolit- the political situation in their country is such that they will not likely come back in the, in the near term, promoting the process of integration, in my view, it's important. <coughs> I think there was an important question about what explained the difference in terms of the second generation in the in the PISA, in the educational outcomes. Is that uh, the English-speaking can all countries one factor. I think it does play a role, but many of the parents, the foreign-born parents, did not speak English when they came into the countries. And I think what explained the result, you know, somewhat the similar result between the children from foreign-born and native-born in countries like Australia and Canada is that they have a long-standing, successful integration policy that works for the first generation and works for the second generation. And they are very well established labor migration policy with a point system whereby they attract some of the talents. So also the composition in terms of skill of the parents is somewhat <coughs> different from what you observe in a number of other European countries in which there's much more heterogeneity and many of the immigrants are actually very low skills so have less ability to actually help their children to perform well in school. A lot can be done on the first but also on the second generation in my view. Um, I think there was a sort of a, a loaded question about uh, country of origin, uh, cultural norms, social norms, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you look at the Syrians, the integration of Syrians in Sweden, is actually pretty high. Many of them actually are high-skilled, and they were quickly integrated into, into the economy because there was a demand for their skills. Of course, you also have a lot of uh, people coming from Arab currently with very low skills actually unskilled which the integration into the labor market in a country like Sweden, many European countries where the standards are pretty high is not easy at all. So there is an early investment needs to be made that can be substantial, but also there are social norms. Many accompanying women coming as refugees or as actually simply family reunification never work in their own country, and you cannot expect them to basically be integrated into the labor market as quickly as people coming from other countries where they used to work in their own home country. I think this has to be recognized, but I think there is a supply side issue, but there is also, and you pointed out to that, a demand side issue, there is discrimination. I think we have run, and we have basically looked at the evidence, which is overwhelming, about studies looking at discrimination based on the name, how the sounding name, right? This has been done in different ways, including how many people are called up for interviews when they apply for a job. And I think there is a significant evidence of discrimination for those with a foreign sounding name in particular with an Arab sounding name. So there's a lot to be done also on the demand side to reduce the stigma, to reduce the discrimination that may play even on this sort of hiring phase of integration to the labor market. And I think, there is, I think Alessandra made that point very well. There is a lot that can be done to communicate, but there's a lot of misperception, which are, I mean, to some, to some extent, well-grounded, because people are facing this problem in their own community, in their own labor market, in their own job, and so on and so forth. We cannot dismiss that. But I think there's a lot that can be done, not to present only the aggregate figures, but try to go down into what can be done as part of the solution or just, you know, highlighting that on average everything looks fine, the problem is not really there. Try to find solution on the ground, drawing from the different experience that do exist in many, many countries. Thank you, yes,
8: uh, so I just uh, continue the thoughts? same point. Uh, yes, uh, the, the problem of integration, many of people rise. it is difficult to integrate people for the diversity, for the, ca- the cultural differences, and so on. Um, I think that uh, politician policy in general has uh, paid very little attention to the feeling of people. Uh, but there is also a structural mistake uh, in the integration policy. Um, the, ethnic, the creation of an ethnic community in which people are, in large number, homogeneous, reduce integration. All the empirical research on integration. If you put the stock of the same nationality in the area of destination, this slow down integration because people remain in their own community, they speak the same language, they interact with them, and they socialize less with the native people. Only the highly educated one, but I mean tertiary educated, not medium educated, have some contact with people outside. So I think that this idea of diversity culture and so on, this is uh, has brought a very interesting research in which uh, the efficient way of integrating people of a different culture so, is to have a small number spread around the country try to avoid large ethnic community, because in this way they reinforce in the native in the native citizen, this the sense of diversity. We are different. Somebody before was mentioning the diversity of culture. And they reinforce their own culture inside. So this has been, of course, in the past it's difficult to go back to old communities, but the UK who was the first that started to study the ethnic community. I remember they invited me for a conference when I didn't even know how many migrants we have in Italy and they were asking me how behave the ethnic communities. I was absolutely scared by this question. And exactly, this is a management issue. You have to avoid ghettos. We have to avoid large community homogeneous so on. So diversity, the research on diversity is showing clearly that diversity is positive, but diversity mean to Indian, to Romanian, to Bulgarian, to so diversity of nationality. Instead, when the diversity is limited, so you have two large community, that's all, or they become independent. They integrate, the second generation integrate, or otherwise difficult to manage. And so this is... Uh,
0: okay, thank you very much. I think that's uh, a lot of information that came today. Not all very uh, happy information, but a lot, a lot to do. Well, thank you all very much for joining us for this, and please join me in thanking the panel, It it's very interesting to There's lunch outside. Pretty good.